Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. The constellation of UN agencies, non-governmental organizations, and local actors that respond when people's lives are upended by a natural or man-made disaster is what we refer to as the humanitarian aid sector. Think aid agencies that rush in supplies after an earthquake or provide food, shelter, and medicine to people displaced by conflict. That's humanitarianism. And in the relatively short history of modern humanitarianism, great crises have often inspired reform in how the international community approaches emergency situations. My guest today, Jessica Alexander, wrote a sweeping review of how big crises over the last 30 years or so have compelled the humanitarian aid sector to change how it operates. Her article culminates with a discussion of how the current COVID crisis is forcing a new kind of reckoning in the aid sector. Jessica Alexander is a longtime humanitarian worker and editor of the New Humanitarians Rethinking Humanitarianism series, in which her article appears. Jessica Alexander is also the author of a book I'd highly recommend called Chasing Chaos, My Decade in and Out of Humanitarian Aid, which offers some really fascinating grounds-eye insights into the world of humanitarian aid. We kick off our conversation today discussing how the aftermath of the Rwanda genocide in the mid-1990s gave rise to a more formalized humanitarian aid sector. We then discuss how some big crises like the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami and the 2010 Haiti earthquake forced changes to how international humanitarian relief operates. And then we have a conversation about how COVID might inspire some fundamental change in the aid sector. This is a great conversation. I think you'll like it. And on a personal note, Jessica is someone I've known pretty much my whole life. Our families are old friends, and it was great to have her on the show. I'll post a link to her article and her book in the show notes of this episode, and I highly recommend you read both. Finally, I'm recording this introduction to the episode just a few hours after the World Food Program won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, WFP is, of course, a key member of the humanitarian community uh, that we discuss at length in this conversation. Uh, It's one of the larger global humanitarian relief organizations in the world. The work of the WFP is something I've returned to on the show often uh, in the podcast, and I'll post a link in the show notes to my 2018 interview with the head of the World Food Program, David Beasley, and also to my conversation in early 2020 with the chief economist of the World Food Program. Both episodes offer some helpful insights into how this vital aid agency operates. All right, now here is my conversation with Jessica Alexander. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization 
hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I started my piece with Rwanda because it really was a watershed moment for humanitarianism, the humanitarian sector, I think for a number of reasons. Um, You know, first you saw this large scale evaluation come out of it, the GEAR, the Joint Evaluation of Emergency Assistance to Rwanda. And this was one of the first times that the sector deliberately kind of set out to find what went wrong, what worked, how the response went. So there was a huge investment in kind of evaluating our performance. And I think that in itself was a big moment. But the evaluation revealed a lot of of flaws in the response. It highlighted, interestingly, some of the things that still plague the sector today. So things like poor coordination, which, you know, there have been improvements over time with, but um, there was, you know, poor accountability to affected people. Again, improvements today on that. Um, and, you know, this big exposure of aid being directed to the, the perpetrators of the violence. So this was, you know, a very public evaluation laying out the sector's inability to handle some of the, the very nuanced contextual factors, which led to the camps being staging grounds for for genocidaires to regroup and and for cholera also to break out under the watch of of humanitarians. So it was was like a massive cholera outbreak, right? In the DRC, Eastern DRC, because those who built the camps didn't sort of have perhaps the professional expertise to build them in a way um, that might mitigate the spread of diseases like cholera. Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, to be fair, people just kind of fled to to Goma, to DRC, and they plopped themselves down um, right on this volcanic rock. It wasn't sort of a pre-planned camp. Um, humanitarians went in to, to operate there, but people were already like there. And so the conditions were rife for cholera to spread, but they didn't kind of go out. Once a few cases started appearing, they didn't go out and proactively you know, do the public health messaging and the work to prevent a wide scale outbreak of cholera. So, you know, it was a real wake up call to say, hang on a second, you know, we we need to professionalize here, right? It's not good enough anymore just to be doing this out of a notion of, of charity or, you know, this idea that um, we're doing good because we didn't do good. And in fact, we did, you know, very bad. Um, it's not only the, the, cholera incident, but also, you know, perpetuating the conflict. And, you know, that was a really controversial moment for for the humanitarian aid sector. Do you stay or do you go when you know that part of the aid is being redirected to some of the people that who, you know, were genocidaires in the first place and were using that as as a staging ground to, you know, continue attacks. Um, So, you know, aid Aid was really discredited. I mean, I think that the sector was discredited, um, not only by the GEAR, but also, um, you know, the, the Red Cross's big world disaster report at the end of the 90s, um, you know, 
highlighted these accusations of poor performance and, um, you know, that that aid was capable of of doing more harm than good. Um, So, you know, the, the sector was pretty battered, but in its, you know, what it did was was kickstarted this push for for professionalization um, and for you know just basic standards of of operating that we could adhere to and and some consistency of responses, right? Um, and, and so, well, that's one of the I think one of the big points hammered home in, in your piece is that you know this the aftermath of the Rwanda genocide led to a professionalized aid sector whereas before it was dominated by people perhaps motivated by good intentions but not necessarily technical expertise absolutely yeah and and you did see this shift in professionalization you did see more awareness of the standards and an acknowledgement that we have to do better and not just an acknowledgement you know actual standards um, that were developed in the aftermath that you know there's no regulatory body that, you know, makes organizations adhere to the standards, but at least some metric by which organizations could um, could try to aspire to or had to operate under. And, and you know, I think it, it did propel the sector imp- to improve. You saw also out of the late 90s, uh, you know, new... Um, new universities uh, dedicated to humanitarian response. It was now a profession, you know, uh, one that you needed to get training to be qualified for. And so I think that had a lot of advantages that there were some unintended disadvantages, which we can get to later, but, but um, you know, that's uh, what emerged sort of at the end of the decade were, were a number of mechanisms to try to achieve, um, you know, better, uh, better, more accountable, more professionalized, standardized humanitarian assistance. And is it fair to say that the first real big test to this, you know, newly professionalized aid sector is the 2004 Indian Ocean tsunami, which, you know, to remind people is, I don't know, probably like the single to this day, or maybe the Haiti earthquake exceeds it, the single sort of deadliest natural disaster of the sort of modern post-World War II era, right? This is this was the first big challenge to that system. Yeah, I mean, there were, of course, that was about a decade later. So there were a number of conflicts and other disasters that happened in between that time. Um, but absolutely, I mean, and, and you know, let's be let's be fair here too. Like the tsunami um, was, was a disaster. It was not a result of a, of a conflict. And so it was a very different kind of, um, of humanitarian response that was required. Um, But yes, I mean, I think in terms of, certainly in terms of, of publicity um, and the scale of, as you said, you know, the deaths as well as the amount of funding and um, attention to the response, it dwarfed anything that had happened between, I think, Rwanda and and that event, which was in, you know, near Christmas time of, of 2004. So um, late 2004, early 2005, which is when, when the response was. And so, yes, many of these initiatives were then were then put to the test. So um, you did have a cluster system. Or, I'm sorry, you didn't have a cluster system. You did have um, sphere standards at the time. Um, but there were, again, you know, a number of, of flaws. Um, and, you know, the, the, the progress that had made, that was made since Rwanda, um, 
I think was was seen to be more perhaps rhetorical than than that of of reality or making a difference for people uh, on the ground. So, so what did the response reveal in terms of the deficiencies of the aid sector? Sure. I mean, I think the first thing, and this ne- isn't necessarily of the aid sector, but of you know the governments, was a complete lack of preparedness. Um, and you know there weren't early warning systems, so many more people died than than had to have. You know, if there had been tsunami warnings, if people had been educated about what to do, what a tsunami even looked like, um, you know, they could have um, gotten gotten to higher ground. Um, there was enough time to do that, but. Um, you know, there was a ton of, uh, money being donated. You know, you had this endless stream of media coverage. As I said, it was right around Christmas time. People, you know, were, were giving donations. Um, and it was this sort of blameless, uh, natural phenomenon that had happened. Unlike a, a conflict that was very difficult to maybe explain in a short soundbite. I mean, here you had tons of media pouring attention to the disaster, this huge wave. Oh my gosh, what should we do? And so um, you had a ton of money being spent on it and more money than I think agencies knew what to do with or could actually absorb in the context. And so they were tripping over each other, literally. And I wrote about this in the article, but you know what, I was there doing an evaluation for a large um, UN organization. And, you know, they were operate, they were setting up a, a child-friendly center, you know, in one area. And there were dozens of them, you know, within walking distance, more than the children in the community could even fill. Um, and so it led to this very strange, um, situation where, you know, you had too much funding. Um, and it was the response was called kind of like a humanitarian showcase where you had uh, these organizations just setting up shop just to show that they were doing something, um, but bearing very little correlation with with real needs, um, and providing things that really didn't match what people what people needed or the the scale of of what the needs were and not only that but you know and this isn't necessarily the fault of aid organizations but again very well intentioned people you know just started donating stuff and that is characteristic of um, of the the tsunami response you saw that in Haiti I think it's gotten a lot better today but you know yeah, like the, the, the message has been hammered home don't send you know teddy yeah. bears or shoes send money exactly yeah but I think you know you saw unused clothes you know everything from ripped jean shorts in Sri Lanka where women wear saris to you know Santa costumes which were just you know rotting on the side of the road and then you have like harmful stuff like medicines, you know, people just clearing out their, their medicine cabinet and sending stuff again, well-intentioned, but without any sort of conception of how this will impact the response, which is slow it down, take time away from civil servants who are now needing to sort through all this stuff coming through the airport. And, um, so those were some of the, the, the problems, but the biggest problem was this lack of coordination. And I think, um, that, you know, was important. That's, you know, a a major feature of the response, because this is what really pushed the humanitarian sector to reform and introduce the cluster system, right? Yeah. So that's a a big, I think, inflection point in the aid sector in general is in the aftermath of all these duplicative efforts and non-coordinated efforts that you just described, um, this uh, cluster system emerged. 
can you and and, and ex- that cluster system you know exists to this day as the way in which um, humanitarian agencies work with each other to respond to natural disasters. So mm-hmm. can, can you just briefly describe for those who are unaware of what the cluster system is? Sure. So when you have any kind of response, um, you will have a number of different sectors responding, right? So we as humans, we need food, water, shelter, um, education for our children, etc. And so each of these sectors, before the cluster system, I should say it was kind of a free for all. And there was some sort of sectoral coordination, but it wasn't formalized. And so you would have what you had in the, in the tsunami. What I described is all of the agencies clustered around the most easily accessible area, providing the same kind of support, whether or not um, it was necessary in that area. Now with the cluster system, you have a lead agency. So you know that, for example, UNICEF is going to be coordinating all of the organizations working on water and sanitation, right? And there is going to be a strategy, right? There is going to be um, a strategic focus to the work of the water and sanitation organizations, right? And so you divvy up the map geographically and you say, who's going to go to the north? Who has resources and capability to work over there? Who's going to go to the West? There are needs over there. What is going to be the strategic priorities of our response and have some uniform standards by which we we do them so that one community doesn't get X and the other community gets Y, which leads to tensions. Um, And so there's consistency, there's predictability, there's more strategic focus to the work that's being done. The first major test of this cluster system was the 2010 Haiti earthquake uh, in terms of the scale of disaster and the response that was mounted. So how did the the cluster system hold up in the face of that huge disaster? Well, I would say, I mean, it wasn't the first place that the cluster system was put to the test. I mean, the cluster system had been operating for a long time since 2005 when it was introduced. So there were five years in between to kind of smooth out some of the issues and, and it was, it had been rolled out already in, in all of the countries, but yes. um, And, and my piece too, you know, was very selective in terms of the crises that I could cover, but I mean, it was the next big um, sudden onset disaster um, where, again, you had very little early warning. There weren't contingency plans in place um, where you had the massive influx of, of the cluster system. And, you know, it did what it was intended to do. The 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 um, the response was coordinated. But what you saw, I think, by that point was that it was very focused on the international organizations, right? And um, I mentioned in in the piece, you know, and this is a story that I think anybody who worked in the Haiti response recalls is, you know, that, that there was this exclusion of local actors in the very meeting. So we talk about, you know, trying to include local capacity, but at the same time, our systems and the cluster system in this case, you know, had evolved to a certain point where we weren't, they weren't even entering the tent under which these meetings were taking place. And so it's a very kind of exclusive, um, international. Or holding the meetings in English as opposed to French. 
Exactly. Holding them in English, holding them in acronym speak. I mean, even I walk into those meetings and I'm like, wait, what are we talking about? I speak English, obviously, you know, and, and it's a very intimidating space. And if one, you don't speak the language two, you're not familiar with the, the whole jargon and the, you know, procedures of the UN. I mean, it can be a very intimidating and, and, um, place to, to participate. And so, and, and not to mention that it's not just that they couldn't get into those tents because of security reasons, which I think were, were, were ultimately resolved, but they're held in the capitals, right? And um, many local, local organizations might not be based there. And so to ask them to drive two hours to get to a meeting where they're not, their contribution isn't going to even be asked for is kind of ludicrous, right? Um, and so I think at that point, there was this really, you know, there was good work done by some of the agencies. There was huge obstacles to the Haiti response that were out of the control, I would say, of the humanitarian sector that really came down to Haiti just being a, a failed state and poor governance and um, uh, rife corruption. Um, but it did, it did point out once again that you had this this lack of accountability to affected people, this lack of inclusion um, with local organizations, um, with really hampering the the quality of the response. And uh, as you know it in your piece, you know, the aftermath of the Haiti earthquake kind of led to a certain degree of, of sort of soul searching, right? Mm-hmm. In which the idea of moving towards what's now known as localization uh, gained more momentum and more support. And that sort of culminated to a degree, I'd say, in the World Humanitarian Summit. And mm-hmm. that was in, was that in 2016? Yes. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 2016. Um, can you just sort of describe, you know, what we mean when we say localization, uh, and, um, how that was included in, in like the discussions in Istanbul? Sure. Um, well, it was, it was one of the, the big features, I would say, of, of the Istanbul meeting. There were a ton of, of um, items on the agenda, uh, which, you know, I didn't have space to go into in my, in my piece. But, you know, it was really this, this culmination of ideas and issues that had been circulating in the sector for a while, but it really gave space and momentum to them, especially localization, which, by the way, is... Um, you know, many people think of it as a, a pejorative word, and actually, you know, the word itself points out, you know, how um, how still top down Western yeah. dominated the sector. We could call it, it like but, deforeignization. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, there was this tagline that was dubbed before the in the lead up to the summit, you know, as as local as possible, as international as necessary, right? Which again, I think is is kind of pejorative in that one, it doesn't recognize that the majority of of um, responses are local, right? And you know, we we give ourselves way far too much credit for the work that we do. That most of it is being done by local groups anyway. Um, we just don't formally recognize it. But there, you know, it, it culminated in this um, this the 
part of the grand bargain commitment, sorry, was around localization. And, and one of those is around to give more power. And by power, we mean funding to local organizations. Um, and, and I should say grand, the grand bargain is like the, the, what they termed the outcome document from this, uh, summit. Is that right? right? It was a set yeah. of, it was a set of key commitments that organizations could sign up to. Right. And one of those was around cash. One of those was around localization. Right. And, and there were a number of them. Um, but, but one of, but the one that people often point to, to demonstrate how far we, how far our grand promises are from reality is this commitment that by 2020 this year, we would have given 25% of funding to local organizations. So, you know, typically what happens is you have your your institutional donors who give funding to UN organizations, who then give funding to international NGOs, who then give it down to national NGOs and then civil society, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Each of them sort of taking a a slice off the top. Well, this was a commitment or an attempt to cut out the middleman and say, hang on, let's give it directly to local organizations. Um, That 25 percent commitment, you know, has not even come close. I think mm-hmm. that it's around 3% or something at this point. Um, and so, you know, we, we really haven't lived up to these promises. Again, lots of talk about it, a lot of head nodding in meetings. Um, but when it comes to actual reality, in terms of the numbers, um, there's very little that I think has changed in that regard. Um, so I- one, sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, no. Did, uh, I was, I was going to try to bring it up to the, the kind of current moment yeah. um, in the last few minutes. So, so I, I'm glad that we spent all this time sort of setting the context for this current huge disaster that we are currently in. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, as you said in, in your piece, you know, each disaster reveals something uh, mm-hmm. about the AIDS sector. What is this current, uh, COVID-19 pandemic disaster? revealing to you about the aid sector? Well, it's a, it's revealing a lot of things um, and we may not have time to go into, into all of them, but, and, you know, I think it's raising more questions than I possibly have answers for, but um, you know, the pandemic really has changed the way that aid is delivered um, some of its priorities and, and focus, but, you know, it's not just, the, the pandemic, it's also things like the Black Lives Matter movement, which has forced this sort of reckoning with um, long-standing power imbalances and social injustice, not only in the countries that we work, but also the way aid is delivered, racism within the humanitarian sector. Um, you know, a lot of the Rethinking Humanitarian series has, has covered that and talked about the need to decolonize aid. Um, but, you know, Going back to our our previous discussion, you know, it's it's changed the operating model um, and, you know, this acceptance of what we're calling localization um, in a more urgent way, more brought on by necessity than anything else. Like Um, you can't fly staff from Geneva to, you know, Cox's Bazaar as easily today. Exactly. Right. So So you're going to want to work with local organizations who are already there. Right. So planes are grounded. You have to quarantine. We're not flying in and out of these places and parachuting in the way that we used to, which, you know, remains to be seen a good thing, bad thing. Nothing changes. We don't know. But what it it is doing is sort of changing this operating model. And so we're providing 
we're doing a lot of the things that we said that we should be doing, you know, providing technical assistance um, as opposed to being the assistance, you know, being more complementary to locally driven responses than us leading the response. You know, we're doing, you know, trainings by Zoom now and we're sitting in, you know, outposts in Geneva, in New York, in Brussels and, you know, the headquarters and not parachuting in like, like we've done before. So what that well, so means, isn't that like, well, isn't yeah. that, does that mean it's sort of accelerating the kind of positive trends that were outlined by that, you know, Istanbul summit, the idea of to try to defer more systematically to local organizations? You'd hope so. I mean, I, I think so. Again, let's see. Once there's a vaccine and we can move around freely, which I hope we can at some point, you know, will will we just revert back to how we've always been doing? Um, you know, we're, we're forced to do this by necessity. You know, will the operating model that is now working today sustain itself? But I mean, let's be clear, too, like COVID has also reinforced some of the top-down power structures in a way, just looking at the funding, right? So the the Global Humanitarian Response Plan for COVID, right, which is a $10 billion appeal, which is the biggest ever um, covering, you know, dozens of countries, um, you know, the lion's share of funding for that has gone still to WHO, still to WFP, the UN agencies. Um, and so, you know, you may still, see local actors doing more on the ground and, and they're having more visibility just because we're sort of out of the way, but you know, it's still the funding streams are still going the same way. And that's again, because donors still aren't able to, to give directly to, to local organizations, you know, they're, they're very risk averse. Um, and so they're more comfortable with going with who, who they know. So on the one hand, yes, I think it's an accelerated and acceptance of, of these changes. Um, but I don't know whether they will hold and I don't, I don't see at, at a very macro level, the, the funding changes happening, um, that, that I think we had wanted or that there had been commitments for coming out of the world humanitarian summit. I guess lastly, I mean, is there an indicator to you that would suggest to you whether or not, um, this process towards localization, you know, accelerates and, and, and takes hold and doesn't revert back to how it was before. So is there, I mean, are there any indicators or what we'll be looking towards to suggest to you one way or another, what the sort of future of the sector would look like? Um, that's a great question. I mean, I think the funding is, is one of them, but I think the other one is, um, I mean, localization, I think comprises a lot of different things, right? It's about power, and it's about power dynamics and the undoing some of those, right? And, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that struck me in, in some of the research for the Rethinking Humanitarian series was about is, you know, we don't need to wait for this systematic overhaul necessarily, right? Which I think is what previous efforts have tried to do and also potentially why they've failed, right? A lot of change that you see and change that can be oriented towards more local can be done, you know, are, are more the smaller changes, right? Um, where they happen in one community, in one village. Um, they happen with one organization who, you know, makes the HR commitment or policy to only hire from, you know, national staff. Um, 
you know, changes for, in field office to, to, to deliver differently um, and, you know, share more decision-making or give all the decision-making authority to local organizations. So I think you're going to see these changes in smaller scales. And so it's like an aggregate of these different um, approaches together rather than this, this systematic overhaul, which I don't think we should be waiting for um, because I don't necessarily think it, it will, it will come. I think, you know, aid is is run by the richest most powerful countries and there's a lot globally that needs to change before those kind of systems change but you know i do i do i am heartened by um things that i've seen or or things that i've heard of happening on the ground you know local efforts um being recognized in a new way and you know people um local organizations coming to, you know, uh, help each other network humanitarianism, the, the increase of the use of cash in response to, to COVID. I mean, there are a lot of really good things that I think have come as a result of, of these changes. And it's just a matter of whether they will hold um, and whether we can, you know, pick up on what I just discuss, you know, these smaller changes at a, at a, at a local level and, and recognize them and not necessarily wait for, you know, the big, uh, systemic change that, you know, I think we've, we're, we've been calling for, but, uh, but I'm not so sure it, it will happen. Uh, well, Jessica, thank you so much for your time. This was great. Thank you so much, Mark. It was great speaking with you. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jessica. That was great. Uh, and one thing that Jessica asked me to point out, to emphasize, uh, is that this idea that she uh, brought up at the end of our conversation of not needing to wait for a systemic overhaul, it comes from Danny Sreeskandaraja, who's the CEO of Oxfam Great Britain. Uh, and it is an idea that will be featured in a forthcoming story as part of the Rethinking Humanitarianism series in The New Humanitarian. And again, I'll post uh, links to that series in the show notes and on globaldispatchespodcast.com. All right. Thanks so much. We'll see you next time. Bye.